Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Before I pray, I want to give you Michelle Dacus. The Bible says that my king is a seven-way king. He's the king of the Jews. That's a racial king. He's the king of Israel. That's a national king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? Well, David says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can display in visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. No barrier can hinder him from pouring out his blessings. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperiously powerful. He's impartially merciful. And I wonder, do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He stands in the solitude of himself. He's matchless. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the miracle of the ages. And he's the superlative of every good thing you choose to call him. And he's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. And so I wonder, do you know him? He provides strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He beautifies the meek. And so I wonder, do you know him today? Well, my king's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway to deliverance. He's the highway to holiness. Yes, that's my king. Well, his office is manifold. His promise is sure. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercies are everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy, and his burden is light. And I wish I could describe him to you. But my king is indescribable. Yes, that's what he is. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him off your hands, and you can't get him out of your head. You can't outlive him, but you cannot live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him, and the witnesses couldn't get their testimonies to agree. Herod couldn't kill him, death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. No one came before him, and there will be no one after him. He is no predecessor, and there will be no successor. You can't impeach him, and he's not going to resign. But you can trust him. Yes, that's my king. That's my king, and thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. And how long is that? It's forever and ever and ever and ever. And when you're through with all the forevers, then amen. You're my God. You're my king. That's my king. And I wonder, do you know him? Lord Jesus, you are our reigning king, and we are humbled before you, and we love to exalt you, and we pray that you would be with us. Might your spirit reign here today for your glory. Amen. Indeed, O God, we are a people whose name have been hidden in Christ. Our new address. Our lives are hid with Christ in God. We are a people who have been justified by the righteousness that only Christ provided or ever could have provided. 
There is not one plea that your people bring before your throne of grace. It would be so outrageous to do so. Our only, our only hope is found in Christ and Him crucified. And so we cling to Him. There is nothing in these hands that we bring. It is simply to His cross that we cling. For only in Christ is there forgiveness of sin and a reconciliation that puts the sinner right with his God. Thank you, O God, that it is our privilege to sing of great truths such as these. It is our privilege to contemplate, to consider the great worth of Jesus Christ for, for his people. And Father, my, what, we, what goes on here today bring you praise. This worship service, O oh God, is not designed to bring people entertainment. It is designed to bring you praise and glory. We are an audience that has gathered so that we can please and give pleasure to the, to the one who watches all we do. We are a congregation that is here to bring pleasure to heaven. And so, Father, might you be pleased with what you see. Might you approve of that which flows out of each heart. And, Father, when we're finished, might we be people brought further into conformity with this one that we consider to be altogether lovely, Jesus Christ. Father, accept these gifts. They are given not to this church. They are given to the King of Kings. Might they be used, every dime of them be used to advance his glory and that only. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them with me to the book of Acts. And we'll uh, resume our study of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 3. Beginning at verse 11, you follow as I read. Acts chapter 3 at verse 11. Now as the lame man who was healed uh, held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, Why do you marvel at this, or why look so intently at us, as though by our power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And killed the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets... That the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, 
that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things and whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I'm told that one of the uh, one of the hottest tickets in Las Vegas, one of the one of the biggest shows in Las Vegas, is the Siegfried and Roy show. It's a magic show with with uh, white tigers and white lions and. Uh, and somehow magic is performed in the midst of all those uh, man-eating beasts. Well, it's really uh, not, uh, shouldn't surprise us. Magic is, um, is something that appeals to a lot of us. Um, we all like to be wowed, mystery, and, and even the supernatural, as long as it's not that, uh, that supernatural divine stuff. That's a little bit too scary for all of us, but. But my point is, uh, Peter has drawn a crowd because, once again, he's wowed them. He's wowed them with this miracle that is uh, outlined in verses 1 through 10. And as a result of people being wowed at something that cannot explain, a crowd gathers. And as a result of this crowd gathering, we get the record of Peter's second sermon. His first was recorded in chapter 2. Well, here is Peter's second sermon. Now, maybe it's only the sick who would ever notice this. And since I'm the one who noticed it, maybe I'm the only sick one in the room. But I want you to see something that I I think is rather remarkable about this, this event. And it happens at the very beginning of it. I want you to notice with me. How determined Peter is to get these people's eyes off of him. If you look at verses 12 and even verse 16, but let me just read for you verse 12 again. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or or, or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? It's almost as if Peter has been made very nervous by the fact that people are are looking at him and and giving him credit for something that he didn't do. That's remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. In and of itself, it's remarkable because this scene has all the makings of something that many of us would kill for. Imagine 
Imagine you're in a big crowd of people. And uh, they all have their eyes transfixed on you. And, and you've just done something, uh, some astonishing, spectac- spectacular feat. And they're all giving you the credit for it. A crowd, or rather frenzied crowd, has gathered around and, and thinks that you're some kind of, you're just some kind of wonderful, wonderful person. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the kind of stuff out of which hero worship is born. The limelight, acclaim, recognition, approval, applause from the crowd. And in the midst of that, Peter is determined. That people not give him that stuff. You know, um, placed in circumstances similar to those, many of us, dare I say most of us, we would milk that sucker for all it's worth. People with all their eyes fixed on us. Giving us credit for this astonishing accomplishment. We don't discourage people from applauding us. We long for that stuff. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, we're obsessed by that stuff. And the, 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 the main symptom and the, or the key characteristic is our obsession, our, our lust for approval. Me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm an addict. I can scrounge and scavenge approval in all kinds of ways. And I'm, and I'm speaking about you now because I, I'm one of you. But there is a lust, ladies and gentlemen, among us to be approved, to be applauded and sought after and, and, and highly regarded. God forbid that Oh my, that someone would, would think that I was inept, cowardly, or gossipy, or, or gluttonous, or lazy, or stupid. Gang, we spend a lot of our time ensuring that people see us in the most heroic, Humble, dignified, competent light that we can possibly shine on ourselves. And yet, here's Peter in a situation that could have brought him all kinds of kudos. And the first thing that concerns him is that these people stop it. He doesn't want their approval. He, he brings a halt as best he can to all of this, this acclaim and this applause. He wants to make sure that he doesn't get any of the credit. It's as if he's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, folks, don't, don't, I'm nothing special. I'm, 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 I'm not any different from you are, than you. Don't focus on me. And the, and the amazing thing about it, ladies and gentlemen, is that he means it. 
you know, I bet I'm not the only person in this room that's tired of living like that. That is, chasing after the approval and the recognition of the crowd as if I was some kind of hamster, you know, and one of those, one of those little wheels that they turn, you know, just kind of <laughs> chasing after somebody to approve me and somebody to applaud me. And, and in all of my efforts, in all of my lifelong efforts, I know this. I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of this much. That in all of my efforts to gain approval, it hadn't made me one smidgen more secure. Nor has it made me one iota more significant. So how do I get off this never-ending treadmill that so many of us seem to be on? Ladies and gentlemen, that's really my first point. And, and to answer that question, I've got one suggestion for you and the rest of us. I, if you've got your Bibles, and I hope you do, open them to Psalm 142. I want to show you something. What I'm trying to give you is step one as to how to get off a treadmill where people's approval is so terribly important to you. You know, gang... You realize, don't you, that if that's what we live for, we're slaves. We're slaves to people's approval. We're slaves to somebody applauding us and, and highly regarding us. And, and it becomes downright bondage. I have one step to offer you this morning to get us all off of that. It's in really Psalm 142, and I want you to notice something. I don't know what, how your Bibles are arranged, but my, my, if, if your Bible is like mine, it has number, first it has Psalm 142. And then it has these words in black, bold print, a plea for relief from persecutors. Now that, ladies and gentlemen, has been added by the editors of this Bible. Whatever Bible you've got, if it's got this black words in there, that was added. That was added by the translators and the people who put your Bible together. But look at the next words underneath that, because I know these are in all of your Bibles. It says, a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in the cave. Now, gang, you, you don't know this, but in the Hebrew Bible, that portion is included in the Hebrew text. That business about a plea for relief from persecutors, that's not in the Hebrew text. But that, that part in there about a contemplation of David, a prayer when he was in a cave, that is included in the Hebrew text. For some reason, the Spirit of God wanted us to know that David was in a cave when he wrote this. Do you remember that period of his life when he was running from Saul? And he was moving from cave to cave? Why do people go into a cave? What are they seeking when they get into a cave? They're hoping that inside here, I'll be safe. That I can finally have the security that I need to go on with my life. And I want you to notice something that David said here, ladies and gentlemen, that I think is absolutely life-changing. It is life-changing. It is life-changing for all of us addicts who have gathered here this morning who are so desperate to have somebody approve of us. Notice what he says in verse 3. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, 
I mean, this is not a good time in David's life. It's quite the contrary. It's a bad time in David's life. My spirit was overwhelmed within me. And then verse 4, at the bottom of verse 4, he said, Refuge. Refuge has failed me. I've been looking all my life. I've been going from cave to cave. I've been searching for something into which I could run that would give me a sense of safety and security. And I have come to this place in my life where there is nothing that will give me the kind of refuge I'd so long for and so demand. And then the psalm goes on. He says in verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord, and I said, You are my refuge. Gang, one of the objects of all of Christian teaching is to bring you to the place where you can say that. That is one of the goals of everything that we stand for as Christians. And it's simply that you are my refuge. I've been looking for refuge in my profession. I looked for refuge in my family. I looked for refuge in my uh, involvements in the community. I looked for refuge in, in beauty. I looked for refuge in marriage. I looked for refuge. And I finally have come to the place where I've discovered there is no refuge. And then, and then God showed me that he alone is to be my refuge. I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, that is absolutely liberating. That one little truth. You know, Peter seems to have gotten that. And that's why in the midst of a setting where people were at clamoring about how wonderful he was, He could look at that situation and say, stop that, stop that, stop that. I'm nothing special. Because he seems to have understood that there was only one refuge and it wasn't in your applause. It wasn't in the applause of my fellow employees. It wasn't in the applause of my Peer group, the only refuge there is, is to be found in God himself. Peter got that, but most of us haven't. And so we're doomed to spend so much of our life, like little hamsters, spinning around on a treadmill, hoping somebody That we can find somebody or something that will make us ultimately feel safe. Ladies and gentlemen, there isn't a refuge. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. God alone is our refuge. That was remarkable in this text for me. As I said earlier, maybe it's only the sick who notice it. And since I'm the one that noticed it, maybe I'm the sickest. But I don't think I'm the only one who's tired of living a life clamoring for somebody to make me feel good about myself. You know, um, 
Maybe I shouldn't say this. It's not in my notes, so consequently, everybody can really get interested now. Um, because that's when I get really dangerous is when I'm off my notes. But um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm there, but I want to be there. And here's where I want to be. <laughs> there is what I'm about to describe right now. You know, I hope you love me. I hope you say wonderful things about me. I hope that you leave here and talk about the finest sermon that you've ever heard in your entire life. (laughs) I hope that you tell your friends that you go to church pastored by a man that is, he's just the greatest. I hope you think I'm the greatest. But if you don't, it's okay. Because I don't need you. Because you're not my refuge. God alone is to be our refuge. That, ladies and gentlemen, I think is utter liberty. I think that's freedom. And that's why I thought that was remarkable about the text. There's something else in the text. There's a second thing that Peter does that, I, that is, inspires me, uh, actually instructs me as well. But it's the way that he dealt with the unbelieving crowd that he was in. The way that he preached to them. Um, and and, and I, I hope you noticed that it's, it's, it's just reeks with boldness. I mean, notice what all he says in verses 13 through 15. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their fathers, glorified his servant, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life. In a matter of two sentences, ladies and gentlemen, he accuses them of delivering him, of denying him, of disowning him before Pilate when Pilate really wanted to release him. You preferred a murderer to a, a, to a, to Jesus. You, you condemned the innocent and embraced the guilty. And you killed the prince of life. Unvarnished truth that Peter has for these people. I love that about him. And, and the reason I, I draw your attention to that, ladies and gentlemen, is that in, in our day, the church is being told, or the church, maybe if she figured this out on her own, I, I don't know, but, that the best way that we are to reach the unbelieving community that we're around or that's around us is somehow to kind of kind of ease the truth in, you know, kind of uh, tame things down just a little bit. Don't 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 come on too strong. Kind of kind of soft pedal things for a while um, so that there won't be any any offense. And all of that is to be done in the name of evangelism. Are, are you with me? That is, the church is thinking that the way to best reach them is just kind of, kind of soft pedal it a little bit, you know, kind of rub off the rough edges so that nobody will get offended. That's the way we reach them. Well, that's not what I find in Peter. That's, that's one approach, but the other approach is, is just as bad, and that is the approach of, you know, just call a spade a spade. Which usually ends up in name calling and, and the kind of a us versus them mentality. You know, the enemy, the, uh, those rotten homosexuals and those, those, uh, guilty abortionists and, and liberals and Democrats. 
And that, that ends up producing more hostility than converting people. And you don't see any of that in the way that Peter deals with his audience. It seems that if we're going to ever reach them, you're going to have to do it like Peter did it. It, it. It's interesting, by the way, you hadn't read this, but if you look real quickly at chapter 4, verse 4, as a result of this sermon, another 2,000 are added to the already existing 3,000. That is, Peter's approach worked. And here's what I want to suggest was his approach. It was unvarnished truth. That is, truth was to be altered in no way or toned down in no way or smoothed over or modified or anything. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I'm the one that you've heard say a dozen times, the one who loves you the most is the one who will tell you the most truth about yourself. If, if I... If I'm going to modify the truth so that you won't reject me, then I don't love you. I love me. Any preacher who will change the truth so that you won't leave the church doesn't love you. He loves a big church, ladies and gentlemen. And you're just a means, you're just a means to his end. So the first thing that's got to be true about reaching that unconverted world of ours is unvarnished truth. But apparently, apparently Peter did it in such a way that people understood that what motivated him is that he wasn't, he wasn't wielding the truth in such a way to hurt them, as to hurt them, but to help them. It, it was Paul who said it the best, I think. He said, we are people who are supposed to preach truth and love. You know, we, we have a family in this church. I don't see them here, but most of you know them. Um, Mickey and Michelle Hill. You know those people? Well, particularly if you were single or ever was a single uh, who got married in the last 11 years, you, you know this, the Hills because they uh, opened their home to the, the singles Bible study. And uh, their home was kind of a, kind of a humane society for, for singles, you know? Kind of picking up strays as a, you know, this, and, and people came in there and lived for three or four months at a time and then they'd, you know, they'd run off and then somebody else would come in there and live and, you know. Well, Kim, their daughter, tells a story about something that went on in their home. Um, that Kim, their daughter, had just moved to Nashville to begin her, her singing career and, um, she was working at a Christian camp where she met a guy by the name of Jose. And Jose had just become a Christian, and, and um, uh, he had all kinds of problems. And, and Kim said, I immediately thought of my mom and my daddy. And because uh, I, I could send him over to my mom and my daddy. My mom and daddy would get him on the right track and straighten him out, and then he'd be gone. And so she called Michelle and said, uh, told her the whole story about Jose. And, and, uh, and Michelle said, well, sure, he can stay with us. You just tell him to, to um, head on to Memphis, and we'll, we'll get his bedroom ready. So, um, uh, sure enough, about uh, three or four hours later, a, a, a knock on the door was heard. And Michelle goes to the front door, and there stands this nice, clean-cut-looking Hispanic guy. And Michelle, just in her own patented way, 
kind of flings herself on this young man and says, oh, we're so glad to have you. We've been waiting for you to get here. Come into our home. Our home is your home. And she said, she stepped back and the the young man just stood there kind of rigid. And she said, poor little guy. He doesn't even know how to, to respond to kindness. And so she said, so she, you know, she did it again. You know, she grabbed him again and hugged him even more and, and, uh, and, and, and just uh, said it all over again. You are so welcome in our home. We're glad you're here. Our home is your home. Just come right in. And she stepped back and the guy was still rigid and somewhat embarrassed and almost nervous. And she said as she stepped back, she noticed that next to him was a small silver canister... And in her driveway, she noticed that there was a white truck with a well-known logo on the side. And she realized that what she had done is embrace the pest control guy. (laughs) But the point is simply, ladies and gentlemen, that that's a couple who would never dream of... Somehow modifying the truth in any way. And yet communicated with such tenderness and such love. That's what I think you find Peter doing. Never altering the truth. But yet there's no sense of rancor or name calling or us versus them in what he says here. And you see that also in the fact that as he closes out what he says, he concludes his message with this stirring appeal that starts in verse 19. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's as if Peter shifts gears and he says, okay, enough about what you've done. Enough about all your guilt and shame. Enough of that. And, and let's, let's look at the solution. And the solution is a repentance that sorrows over your sin. And then goes on to embrace the sin-bearing servant, the sin-bearing Savior. And the moment that you do, he mentions two things. Repent, therefore, and be converted so that your number one, your sins may be blotted out. Nothing, nothing left to separate me from God. Because the blood of His Son erases the, my sin from my record. I'm considered as righteous as Christ is. Because, because now I'm in Christ. Once I say, Father, accept me. Based on the merits of your son and that only, that is his merits only, then my debt disappears into some spiritual black hole never to be used against me again. Repent so that your sin may be blotted out and, and this is my favorite part of the text, so that times of refreshing may come. A breath of fresh air washes over the soul and brings an end to the staleness. You know, um, 
I, I, I allude to this a lot, but um, I, I work out a lot, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm, uh, one of these days I'm going I'm to be thin. But um, um, I was thinking about this sermon on a Stairmaster about, I don't know, two months ago, or at least thinking about this text, this times of refreshing and I was on a stairmaster over at the Germantown Community Center, and there there are times when you when you go to the particularly in the winter, you know, when it's so cold and dark that nobody can work out outside, um, that you get to the Germantown Community Center and it's packed with people. And because it's so packed with people, when you walk into the workout room, <laughs> you, you you come out of the hall and you walk into the workout room, and the and the air in there just kind of, you know, it's. Thick, smelly, kind of rancid, heavy. You know, you can almost cut the stuff. It's, uh, you know, it's stifling in there. But there's no windows in that room that anybody can open so that you can kind of sweep away all that heavy, smelly air. My point is the gospel does something like that. The gospel is like opening a window and letting something fresh from the outside blow in over your soul so that a time of refreshing has come. There's something very springish about coming to Christ. There's something really refreshing at the base of my soul when I come to Christ and let let this forgiveness kind of blow over a soul and rid it from all that's rancid about it. Ladies and gentlemen, you want something to fill your lungs? Well, let this fill your lungs. <laughs> forgiveness. Forgiveness that comes on the heels of a repentance that sorrows over our sin and then embraces the sin-bearing Savior so that times of refreshment can sweep over our souls. Let's quit. Our Father, I I do pray that you will um, teach us from this text some things that are important, things about our own souls and and how we manage and conduct our own lives, things about how we as a church are, can be useful to you in, in reaching lost and dying culture that, that really doesn't know much about Jesus and what he did. And some of the reason that they've turned their backs is because we've so mangled the truth and presented it with such, such wrongheadedness. And I pray, O God, that you will stir up among us people who understand the beauty, the the necessity of, of representing the truth and doing so with a great flavor of love engulfing it. And I pray, Lord God, that if you've brought people here today who have not yet heeded this appeal on the part of Peter, That there is no refreshment in their souls. That there is no forgiveness in their souls. That there is no blotting away of the sin of their souls. 
that they might see that Jesus Christ is the one who opens windows and allows times of refreshment to blow over and to wash over our rancid souls. Father, bring people to the place where the thing that they long for most is refreshment. A refreshment that comes from knowing Christ. Now, Father, we want to live before you this week in such a way that the only approval we're after is the approval that you give. That's what we long for. That's what we're aiming at. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.